Welcome to Deckert's Committed Capital. This is an episode of Sidecar, a special bite-sized discussion of the latest market issues. Hello and welcome to Committed Capital Sidecar, Deckard's ad hoc bite-sized podcasts covering quick updates on developments that will affect private equity. My name is Clemens York and I'm an antitrust partner based in Brussels and Frankfurt. Hi, I'm Rishi Hari and I am a senior associate in our International Trade and Government Regulation Group and I'm based in Washington, D.C. Hi, I'm Marjolein de Bakker. I'm a senior associate in our antitrust group and I'm based in Brussels. In this episode, uh, we're going to be speaking about some key questions that arise for private equity investors when assessing foreign direct investment risks of a transaction. Marjolein, Rishi, let's start with a question that must be front of mind for all deal makers. How do foreign direct investment reviews affect deal timetable? Let's start with the U.S., Rishi. As with so many things in life, the answer is it depends on the regulator and even the form of filing. In the United States, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, or CFIUS, administers foreign direct investment reviews. CFIUS has a couple of different filing options, a mandatory filing or voluntary filing, and even within those, parties can file declarations, which are short-form filings, or notices, which are long-form filings. So this complexity means that there is a range of potential considerations with respect to timing. Parties should generally allow about two to six months from the start of when they assemble their filings for the CFIUS process to be complete. Thanks, Rishi. Marilyn, what about Europe and the rest of the world? Is, is there any general guidance that you could give? Thanks, Clemens. You're asking me the million-dollar question here, isn't it? I'd say that many regimes are new and laws are evolving fast, so sufficient time should be built in. And it may at times actually even be advisable to proactively discuss timetabling with the authorities. For deals that trigger no true national security risk, but are simply caught within the scope of the national regimes, they will likely get an all clear within one to two months in most jurisdictions. And um, if I may, let me just add one thought on Europe. Um, The EU's oversight role is actually causing delay in national reviews. For example, Austria, has decided to extend its preliminary review from 30 days to two months uh, to facilitate the EU oversight. And authorities in other member states are in practice using the EU FDI regime to buy extra time and extend reviews beyond their statutory review periods. And these novel strategies actually really impact deal timetabling and need to be taken into account. Thanks, Marjolein. That's in line with our experience advising on PE deals with FDI relevance over the last few years. The question that has arisen on occasion is whether, aside from the official review process, investors need to factor in pre-notification discussions as they do in many antitrust jurisdictions. The short answer is, once again, it depends. In deals that are likely going to attract close scrutiny, it's certainly advisable to make contact with the regulator in advance of a filing. In straightforward transactions, there's typically no need for pre-notification. Moving on to substantive questions, you've both mentioned deals with a clear national security risk. But how does one determine that? I'd say it's typically driven by the activities of the target. So what sectors should investors consider as likely to trigger FDI filings or concerns? Thanks, Clemens. There's a broad range of businesses that are of interest to CFIUS from a national security 
perspective. There are some usual suspects, critical technology, critical infrastructure, and sensitive personal data businesses come to mind. And some of these actually trigger mandatory filing obligations. But even when a filing obligation is not mandatory, voluntary filings may be advisable for some businesses. For example, some that provide goods or services to the U.S. government. And of course, there's other companies that don't appear sensitive at first glance at all. But by virtue of the vast amount of customer data that the portfolio company collects, sensitivities can be triggered. In this regard, there was public reporting in the context of foreign acquisitions of online dating companies and even a social network for user-generated videos last year. Cox, Cepheus' crosshairs. Marilyn, would you say that's broadly similar in Europe and elsewhere in the world? Yes, thanks, Clemens. I'll, I'll echo a bit of what uh, Rishi has actually just said. The list of sectors varies between countries, but you can be certain to see sectors such as defense, dual use goods, infrastructure, transport, healthcare also since the COVID pandemic, media and financial services on the list. Generally, also a target supplying the government or having access to sensitive personal data is likely to bring the transaction in scope. For example, a printer deal may become of national security if the target supplies the military forces and stores their data. But there are also specificities in certain countries that uh, investors should watch out for. For example, if a target is closely located to sensitive assets in certain countries, and that could be, for example, a military base, that might be sufficient to trigger a national security review, probably driven by espionage concerns. And then there are also cases beyond the typical sectors uh, that you might also want to consider when investing. For example, in France, the government stopped a Canadian company taking over the French supermarket chain Carrefour on the basis of national security concerns. So many deals may be caught and it, it's really a case-by-case -case analysis. Thanks, Marjolaine. I, I, I agree with that. Uh, from my experience, FDI, in the same way as merger control, should be part of any uh, deal due diligence work, and that sometimes requires detailed discussions about the target's activities at an early stage of the negotiations. But what about the types of investments? How do authorities view limited partners or indirect investment? Rishi, let's start in the U.S. It's a great question and one we're often asked. So a few thoughts on structuring and even a potential solution. So U.S. investment funds with non-U.S. LPs can raise CFIUS concerns, and it makes the structure of investments and rights afforded to those LPs important. U.S. funds should try to restrict or limit a non-U.S. LP's ability to, for example, veto or control certain decisions made by the fund or GP, and they should limit access to the portfolio company's sensitive data. Of course, there are exemptions that are available, and they require careful consideration. In other matters where transaction timing will outpace the speed at which CFIUS can review, we've also used a springing rights model, and that allows transactions to proceed to closing on their preferred timing, but also allows the CFIUS review to continue. So at a high level, this approach is familiar to the government, and it allows non-U.S. nationals to receive the economic benefits of their investment during a post-close pre-clearance period, but suspends the non-U.S. investors' governance rights until and unless CFIUS approval is received. Those exceptions are interesting, Rishi. I actually don't see any or any widespread use of similar exceptions more globally. 
I would say that mostly jurisdictions apply just a simple three-prong filing test. One would be the local nexus. So the target has a subsidiary in the country, or sometimes sales are actually even sufficient, uh, for example, in the UK. Then the second test would be the national security risk. And we already talked about that. That's mostly determined on the basis of a list of sectors. And thirdly, it's the investment that must meet a certain threshold. And that threshold can often be as low as 10% or sometimes even less for listed companies. And to get back to Clemens's question, it's true that uh, most regimes cover indirect acquisitions. Although how a jurisdiction determines ultimate beneficial ownership really varies. Sometimes they look through the corporate tree or it is assessed actually at every stage of the corporate structure. It just depends, as so many things we've already said depend. That sounds really far-reaching. Um, I guess the question on, on everybody's mind is, um, what's the exposure if a filing gets missed? Yeah, that must be true, Clemens. I think there's always the risk of transactions being called in, and authorities could impose measures post-close, actually even including a wind-down of the transaction. But then there are also financial penalties possible, and in the UK, even imprisonment, actually. Um, Rishi, what's the US perspective on this? I'm not aware of anyone being put in prison for violating the CFIUS process, but I, I'd still say that CFIUS and the President of the United States have a range of options. Just as you mentioned, winding down, blocking, or even ordering divestment are options that we've seen. But in other circumstances, CFIUS can impose penalties ranging from $250,000 up to the value of the transaction, whichever is greater. So these potential penalties create infinite tail risk for transaction parties that don't have the benefit of safe harbor conferred by CFIUS clearance. Uh, I think uh, we've really gone around some, some interesting topics here, but Clemens, what would you say is your top tip for our clients? Well, I would say assess any substantive and timing risks resulting from FDI reviews as early as possible in the transaction process. And uh, that typically requires detailed information from the target, um, which at times can be challenging to obtain, uh, in particular if it relates to contracts of smaller subsidiaries, which might be of lesser uh, importance to the company as a whole. Having said that, it's clearly worth going the extra mile here as uh, FDI risks are not always um, obvious at uh, first glance. And uh, we know of many cautionary tales where there's just not been enough due diligence. So it looks like um, we're already running out of time here. Marjolaine, Rishi, uh, thank you for joining me today. And everyone out there, thank you for listening. We've scratched the surface here of FDI controls and their implications on M&A for our private equity clients, and more generally. If you found today's discussion interesting, do not hesitate to reach out to any of us or your usual Deckard contacts with any specific questions. You can also subscribe to our news reports, which are a great source of information on recent developments. You can find all of our resources at www.deckard.com, including other committed capital podcasts as they become available. Thank you for listening. <laughs>